Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Remember to subscribe to our free podcast so you won't miss any of our illuminating content. Here is the second most downloaded podcast for 2017, episode 187, Carlo Rique doing the research on free will education. I model the approach of unschooling and and in my own life to live in ways that I believe are friendlier to the world and to the planet. And, you know, and, and again, I don't impose it on anybody. I don't force others to think the way I think. I just tell them that the best I can do is to share with you how I see the world. And if you're in agreement or if, if something resonates with you, then I'm happy that that's the situation. But if it doesn't, then we can continue the conversation and we can continue to provoke each other. And hopefully by doing that, we'll both continue to grow and, uh, and go from there. Benjamin Franklin once said, Do not curse the darkness, rather light a candle instead. If you are ready to set your mind on fire, then prepare yourself for the Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's Firestarter is Carlo Ricci. Carlo is a full professor at the Schulich School of Education, Nipissing University Graduate Studies. He founded and edited the Journal of Unschooling and Alternative Learning. He has published a number of books and articles. Among the books he has written, edited, or contributed to are The Willed Curriculum, Unschooling and Self-Direction, What Do Love, Trust, Respect, Care, and Compassion Have to Do with Learning?, The Legacy of John Holt, A Man Who Genuinely Understood, Trusted, and Respected Children, which was co-edited by Pat Ferenga, which is a great contributor to our podcast, who's episode 112. He also contributed to Turning Point, 35 Individual Revolutionaries in Education Telling Their Own Stories, Natural Born Learners, Unschooling and Autonomy in Education, Holistic Pedagogy, The Self and Quality Willed Learning, Homeschooling and New View, a reader, How I Lost 35 Pounds in Four Months, a book about education, learning, health, and nutrition, Growing Without School, Volume 1, Issue 1 through 19, John Holt, editor and founder. His research interests include unschooling, homeschooling, holistic education, self-determined learning, free schools, democratic schools, online learning, technology and learning, play, natural learning, curiosity, willed learning, and the willed curriculum, as well as critical pedagogy and healthy living. What a list. That's awesome. Well, welcome, Carlo. Thanks very much, and I'm very happy to be here with all of you. Great. Well, first off, I'd like to thank one of our listeners, Lori Muse, for sending the request for us to invite Carlo onto our podcast. We appreciate listener tips so much, and we're going to give a heartfelt shout out to Lori for connecting us to Carlo's work because he's amazing, and he obviously that list was pretty comprehensive of things he's done. But Carlo, I'm so excited to hear more about your books, writing, research, which I blundered through, but hopefully you'll tell us more about it. But before we get into any of that, please tell our audience a little bit more about yourself. Okay, well, I live in the greater Toronto area in uh, Ontario, Canada. My wife and I have uh, two children, and they were born in 2003 and 2005. And I feel extremely fortunate and blessed to uh, be in an environment with them. 
I've learned so much from them, uh, living with them 24-7 over the years. I could see firsthand how capable young people are and uh, how they can handle freedom in such responsible ways. And so, again, I feel very lucky to be around such wonderful people. And they and the worldview that permeates our life makes parenting so easy and pleasurable. So that's a little bit about my family life. I also, in terms of my hobbies and passions, I enjoy uh, bike riding, traveling, exercising, watching documentaries. And I feel lucky in that the lines in my work and life are blurred. So what do I, what I enjoy doing and what I am passionate about doing, for example, advocating for learners to create a gentler, more loving approach to learning all blend. So my work and my life and my parenting all seem to fit together in a nice, compact way. Well, and I think that's amazing when we can have that kind of life because that's, I think you're a rare person to, to have that happen. So we read, uh, and I love the fact that you talked about how your children have helped you, you know, kind of come to where you're at now, just watching them and learning from them. I think that's so neat. But, you know, in your bio, we read like some of your research interests are, you know, unschooling, homeschooling, holistic education, et cetera, et cetera. You know, let's talk about why these are your focuses of research. And maybe that goes back to our kids. But, you know, and, and tell us maybe what how these learning modalities are similar or how they differ in any type of way. Sure. So in my own thinking, my own worldview, my own philosophy, I like to think of it as three different areas have really influenced me in terms of how I see learning and how I see the world. And critical pedagogy, homeschooling, unschooling, and holistic education have all contributed to how I see things. So from critical pedagogy, what I get is and people who are interested in critical pedagogy are interested in, you know, oppression, who has a voice, who doesn't, who benefits from particular systems, from particular discourses, who gets silenced. So they're interested also in questions of racism and sexism and ageism and homophobia and, you know, feminist thinking and so on. So critical pedagogy has had a huge influence in me for those reasons. Holistic education thinks about and uses terms that we're often sheltered from in the world that we live in and even in the world of schooling and learning and so on. So they use terms like love, trust, respect, care, compassion. Holistic educators talk about mindfulness. They talk about allowing people to, to sort of grow and to unfold in ways that are genuine and natural. So from holistic education, I pick up on all of those things. And then, of course, unschooling or what some people like Wendy Presnitz call life learning, or John Taylor Gatto sometimes refers to as open source learning, or I call willed learning, W-I-L-L-E-D, or willed curriculum as well. You know, from that, I'm interested in, from the unschooling perspective, about freedom and responsibility and genuine, authentic learning. So where the learner actually gets to choose what to learn, where to learn, uh, for how long to learn, whether to opt in or out. And it really comes back to allowing people to unfold and to grow in very genuine, open, authentic ways. I love all that. I think those flow somewhat nicely into each other, even though, you know, you did separate them into three areas. I think they do. Um, I kind of wanted to go back to critical pedagogy. I was thinking about this this morning because I was listening to Akila Richards, which we've had on our podcast before, and she really discusses a lot in race and how, you know, are we working to help liberate our own children? Because I think sometimes as parents, 
what we've done is that we have been given a template of like, you know, through our own training of what's acceptable. And we are basically almost helping to use compulsion, like what the world would want us to force on our children as saying, okay, we're a good parent because we're going to force these children to do these certain things. And that makes us a good parent. Does that make sense? Like we're almost helping in binding our children does that make sense to you? I mean, of what I'm saying, absolutely, <laughs> is that we're binding no, I them. Hear exactly what you're saying, I think, and yeah, and I think we live in a neoliberal, neoconservative, capitalistic world, and that permeates everything we do. So, part of the challenge, I think, is to create an environment that is a lot gentler and a lot more loving toward our young people, and to allow them the freedom and authenticity to grow in ways and unfold in ways that feel genuine and authentic to them rather than a top-down system that imposes, you know, different types of, of approaches to on them and forces them to be and to become either, you know, benefit society economically or objects rather than seeing them as subjects. And so I think we need to consistently or constantly fight against those types of discourses and, and you know, those impressions and continually try to create spaces and places where young people can be free and, and, you know, genuine. And of course, you know, when I talk about freedom, it doesn't mean that they could do absolutely anything they want. It's within the context of democratic principles. So, you know, in my family, our children are free to, you know, decide what to eat and what to wear and whether to go to school or not, or whatever choices they choose to make in order to live their life. And as a loving father, of course, I, I support them in all of those types of decisions. But at the same time, they recognize because they're used to the freedom that they've had and the modeling that they've had and just the, you know, the environment that they lived in, they can appreciate how it feels to be free that they would then not turn around and impose those types of restrictions and limitations on the rest of us. So we live in our family, for example, we live together, we live in a community, and so we have to respect each other. There are things that need to get done, and sometimes nobody wants to do them, but somebody has to step up to the plate and, you know, take, you know, take onus and say, okay, well, I'll do that. And it's amazing how willing young people are to do those types of things. And because they they know how they live their life and, you know, they're they don't want to be hit themselves and they really understand and appreciate how that is not something that they would do to somebody else. And so, you know, I think it's, it's extremely important even earlier when you were talking about critical pedagogy and the different types of isms that they challenge is that unfortunately in the world that we live in, children are the last acceptably oppressed group. And there are things that we do to young people that we would never imagine doing to any other group within the world that we live in. Oh, yes. And so this whole notion of ageism, I think we have to challenge. And this whole notion that, you know, psychology, for example, has done a huge disservice to young people in terms of defining or limiting through definition how they learn or how they develop or how we have to interact with young people or, or parent young people or raise young people. So those types of disciplines have obviously their their constructs and 
you know, people have made up that this is what it's like. And sometimes it's taught as if it's neutral and as if it's not contentious. But obviously there are people who think in very different ways and that challenge these types of constructs that have been created. And, you know, by having these types of constructs, the reason why it's so detrimental and so important that we we think deeply about them and do what Paul Freire says is demythification. There are all these myths out there about what young people are like and how to how we're supposed to inter- be interacting with them, that we have to take those myths and challenge them. And it's so important to do that because, in, you know, the, the biggest thing is our theories, our worldviews, our philosophy, and we all have a theory and a worldview about education, about learning, about teaching, about life, about how to, you know, raise children. Whether we're aware of them or not, we all have them ingrained. And the reason why it's so important to be mindful of them is because those particular theories define or translate into how we act in the world. So our actions are connected to those types of things. And if we have these particular constructs that are are there, then the way we act could be very uh, detrimental to young people. We could be wounding young people unintentionally, yeah. thinking that we're doing very good work. Yeah. Well, and I love how you were talking about the context of looking at the way we treat young people in the fact, like, would you do this to an older person? I mean, I see that just within society of how we interact with them, like just on a regular basis of kids you see in the grocery store. I mean, there are adults that, you know, they would have no qualms about really harshly talking to a young person. Like I said, they would never do that to an older person, but that carries with it some horrible consequences that in the the young person will perpetuate that as they get older, you know, that they'll talk to another person. I mean, that's, I almost feel like that's how our society has managed to perpetuate that. Is that what we're talking about? Right. And, and I think what we need to do is we need to, we need to continue to challenge that yeah. and we need to sort of you know, make sure that those types of things end. There used to be a time where you could beat your employees, you could beat your, you know, prisoners, you could beat your wife. And in 2017 in Ontario, where I'm from, thankfully, you can no longer beat your wife. You can no longer beat employees. You can no longer beat prisoners. But, you know, the Ontario Supreme Court or the Supreme Court in Canada says you can still beat your children and they tell you exactly how that is acceptable and the ways to do that in an acceptable way. So, you know, it hopefully will end just like the other atrocities ended uh, that we thought were fine at the time and now recognize it's not appropriate and that we'll continue to challenge these things. So our government said that they're going to do something about that particular legislation but nothing has come forward uh, yet. But hopefully, you know, we'll move in that direction sooner rather than later. Yeah, I love I'm we're all about a challenging assumptions here on the Lomas Mind. So we're going to go ahead and allow you to do that. One of the things I kind of want to do, I mean, we've been talking about your your present work, but I kind of want to take our audience back to, you know, how you came to these ideas, you know, how you challenged your assumptions. I mean, I mean, did you grow up thinking all of these wonderful pedagogies of unschooling, homeschooling, all that stuff was great? Or was there some like come to Jesus type of moment where all of a sudden you, you know, a light bulb came on and, you know, give us that story of what that looked like. Right. I mean, 
it's kind of difficult to sort of pinpoint because our lives are so complex and sometimes we're thrown one way and thrown another and come into these specific areas and we're thrown into it as Heidegger would say. Well, and but, gently challenging um, one thing, you know, I could, you know, leads to, a, it's kind of like a string that leads to another thing, which challenging that thing leads to another, I mean, right? Right. So I could fabricate a story for sure. And, and you know, at times I do think that this is, you know, at least partially uh, how it happened. On another day, I might say something different, but I was never a fan of schooling. As a young person, while I was going through the school system, and I think my body knew it, you know, before my mind did from a holistic perspective because holistic education is also interested in the interconnection of mind body spirit and emotions and so i think my body was really uncomfortable with being in schooling environments and you know i knew something was not right i couldn't articulate what it was but i i felt out of place there and i felt very uncomfortable within the context of schooling as a student and as a young person and so I kept thinking that there must be something different. And the older I, I got, the more I was starting to expose myself to different thinkers and different, you know, writing like John Holt and, and others and, you know, going to conferences, uh, the Arrow Conferences, Alternative Education Resource Organization, that's Jerry Mintz's organization. And as I started to interact with more people who think in, in different ways and in, in ways that seem to be much more aligned to my way of thinking, to my worldview, I found a community that really spoke to me. And so, you know, that's what I began to do. I began to think more deeply about these issues and I began to talk to more people about it. And, you know, as time goes on, I continue. As Paulo Freire says, we're always unfinished. And so I continue to learn more and more about these types of issues and the more people I talk to and conversations I have and the more days that go by, my thinking is different today than it was yesterday, then hopefully it'll be, you know, a little bit down the road. But the core is there that I think we need to create a gentler, more loving, caring, compassionate, trusting, respectful world. And how do we do that? And, you know, if we start with our young people, I think that's always a good place to start. And if we think about our current practices around learning and so on, I think that the more we challenge these types of, of perspectives, the clearer a different approach will come. And, you know, if there's one message that I would like to, or one myth that I would like to dispel, you know, I teach at a faculty of education and graduate studies department. And a lot of my students say to me, well, I agree with what you're saying for the most part, but, you know, what difference can I make? I'm just a small cog in a big machine. And until the system changes, what can I do? And so my response to that is always, it's a message of hope. And the hope is that each and every one of us can make a difference. All we have to do is not worry about other people, but worry about ourselves and worry about how we interact with, you know, if you're a teacher, a student, or a young person, but if you're not in the teaching field, just other people in the world. So how do you interact with friends and family and strangers and enemies and the planet itself? Uh, thinking about the environment, uh, you know, animals uh, within our environment, the world, the universe, all of these different types of things. So uh, don't worry about other people and, and what other people are doing or not in order to make a world the better place, but focus on your own life and say, and, you know, since each and every one of us are part of the world, and if we change, then by extension, the world that we live in changes. So what differences can you make and where can you make differences? So if somebody says to me, well, at work, it's impossible. Like it's just, 
And I respect that. So maybe it's too much energy or maybe the environment doesn't facilitate that or it's very, uh, you know, for whatever reason, there are too many obstacles. You know, you're in that environment for a short period of time. So where can we make differences? And just by being mindful, there are always people who need help. And if you go for a walk or you just go out to the grocery store or whatever you do, just look around and just see if anybody needs assistance. And inevitably, you'll meet up with people that do need help. And I think each and every one of us will make the world a better place if we're mindful of our environment, mindful of people that might need help, respectfully ask, would you like some help or is there anything I could do to help you? And if they say yes, then all of a sudden we just made the world a much gentler, loving place. And you know, you just continue to do things that way. When I go out with my children, for example, or even if I'm on my own, I try to do that. And there are little things that we could do that take very little time, but are extremely helpful for people. So I remember not too long ago, my children and I went out and we noticed that there was this woman in a, on a scooter and she was trying to go up a ramp. And for whatever reason, the, the scooter got caught on the curb and it was teeter-tottering. And so it was clear that she needed assistance. So we stopped what we were doing. We walked over and we just said, you know, would you like us to help you? And so we helped her and then we helped her take her groceries and we brought her, you know, the groceries to the car and so on. So I think, you know, there's a message of hope there that if each and every one of us just focuses on the types of things that we can do when we can to make the world a better place, that we'd go a long way to moving forward in very positive directions. Yeah. Well, as you were talking, I was thinking about kind of what you were saying about with your children, where they grew up in a place where their ideas and there was no compulsion going on for, you know, no force of them, that it made them think about, you know, how they were treating others, and they wouldn't want that freedom to be taken from them. And they wouldn't want to impose that on somebody else. It kind of fits with the story of you go up to the lady, you see that she wants help, or she needs help, but you don't like go up, oh, I'm going to make this better and just force her, you know, push her wherever. You still gave her the opportunity to, you know, you asked her and she still, I mean, it was all done free will, all done with a willingness to, to help, to be there, but not to just say, oh, I'm going to help you and this is how I'm going to do it. I mean, is that kind of... Right. I mean, you don't... Yeah, I think that's that's important that you don't make assumptions that just because people seem to be struggling that they want your help. And I learned that lesson early on when my oldest daughter was very, very little and uh, she was opening up a sippy cup and was having some trouble. So, of course, as a loving dad, I thought I would take the time to go over and help her. And so I just went up to her and I was going to open the sippy cup for her and she just really resisted you know she she was very upset and went ballistic in a sense and I was just thinking you know what's the matter with you you know and then I thought about it and I said wow you're absolutely right you I know how to open the sippy cup you were teaching yourself about how to open the sippy cup and here I come along rip it from your hands and open it up for you and of course you're going to be upset like extremely upset at the fact that I've interrupted a very important learning moment that you were having. And I think that, you know, nobody is perfect, right? And I certainly don't profess to be in. And I think that we have to be kind not only to other people, but to ourselves. Every day I have lapses. Every day I do things and I think about, wow, I'm not happy how I did that. And I wish I had done 
that in a different way. And But it comes back to what Frieri says, that we're all unfinished. And John Dewey talks about how democracy is, there's never an end. It's always in progress. So there's always something to be done. And so when we do have these lapses, I think it's important for us to be kind to each other and to ourselves and just to say that, you know, think about it and next time, hopefully I'll do better. And uh, if I don't, it's back to square one. But, you you know, you make those efforts and to be kind to yourself, I think, is also extremely important. Yeah. Well, I feel like in parenting that we don't understand how important failure is. I've, I know I've talked about this on a number of occasions on this podcast, but we're in a world now that wants absolute perfection. And that's what they're expecting with schooling, you know, that children, oh, you have to do this correctly. That's what the testing, you know, is about, like, to show us how perfectly you can learn this when, in fact, the best learning sometimes comes. And as parents, we need to let that failure happen what great learn I mean even for us you know we make mistakes and we're better people down the long run because we've experienced the pain of that failure and we've been able to learn from it and we need to think of that with our own kids right and just to add to that I think one of the another thing we need to constantly do is to because often we use words that seem so common and we make assumptions that, well, certainly everybody knows what I'm talking about. When I say the word learn, everybody knows what learn means, but we, there are different nuances to the word and people use the word in very different ways and to mean very different things. So for example, from a schooling perspective, learning equals curriculum. So when a schooler talks about learning, what they're actually saying is that narrow bit of curriculum that people pick up, the way that I like to use learning comes from John Holt, and John Holt talks about learning as living. So as you live your life, you learn things. And those assumptions in themselves about what learning means make huge you know, differences in terms of how you set up and how people feel the impact of the type of space and place you create. So if you have a schooling definition of learning, then all of a sudden it comes with all of these other caveats that go along with the schooling notion that in order to learn something, you have to have tests and grades and bells and whistles and, and you know, stress and anxiety that comes with it. Whereas, you know, another definition of learning as living is very different and you recognize clearly you don't need any of those things. You don't need tests and you don't need bells and you don't need whistles in order to learn things. And in fact, what I would argue is that, all of those types of things, they don't enhance learning, but they diminish learning yeah. because, you know, all those tests and so on and people are not interested in the other thing uh, about it. And so learning gets diminished because people feel stress and they feel anxiety and anxiety and fear are not conducive to learning, but they're the opposite of, of, of learning. And so it's not even the best way to learn the way our, our school systems have set up. So if we're truly interested in learning, uh, I think we have to really think about what that word means and how we learn best. And that's kind of what I was thinking about when I wrote that book, The World Curriculum, is I was trying to think about, well, what would, in my mind, an ideal learning environment be, or how would I learn best, or how do we learn best? And, you know, that book came to be based on those types of, of questions that I was asking myself. 
Well, yeah. And I've had people, you know, when I've talked about unschooling before outside of my podcast with just ordinary people, I've had people tell me, but if I wasn't forced to learn math or whatever, I never would have. All I would have done is played video games. And I have to bring up the fact, well, how do you know that, though? Because you were put in an environment where you were forced to learn you know, you never were given the opportunity to just go, what do you want to learn? And, you know, there was never those questions. It was just like, you will learn this. And it was a very forced thing. And so when you had an opportunity to chill, you did, you know, you didn't um, when there was no force, but we could go on and on. Yeah, These and are there's subjects. Just a, that, yeah, they, there's just a few more things that, that come out of that, actually, yeah. because when you, when you think about this whole notion of of learning math, you know, there's a difference between world math and school math. So the type of math that you need to live your life is likely very different than the type of math that I need to live, you know, live my life. Coupled with that, there's studies that have been done where they show that there's no critical period for learning academic subjects. So you could learn an academic subject any time in your life. And it's not as if, well, you didn't learn it in grade one, now you're never going to learn it. You know, I mean, of course, that's not how learning works. And learning is not linear. It's pretty messy and it goes backwards and forwards and, you know, in all kinds of different directions. There's also a hierarchy of learning. So the assumption is, and I know this will also be controversial and some people will feel really uncomfortable at it, but that the assumption that math is better than gaming. And so if you spend your time doing math, you're doing a good thing. But if you spend your time gaming, you're doing a bad thing and you're wasting your time. And it's not that simple. And there's no bit of information that every single human being in the world needs to learn. And for some people, depending on their interests and their passions and, you know, the trajectory that their life is going to take, gaming might be a much, much better option than doing math and, you know, school math and so on. So there are a lot of, you know, there's studies that have been done that show that those who are medical doctors do much better than those who are medical doctors uh, do much better at surgery and so on if they were gamers as young people, because there's a transferability between the gaming community and the medical profession. So, you know, you never know where these things are going to lead Yeah. And that's the sad part is that we've uh, labeled good learning and bad learning. And then we demonize the people who we think are doing bad learning. (laughs) Anyway, these are strings of thoughts that I could go on and on about. And I'm kind of hoping that as we go through each one of the books and things that you help edited and, you know, contributed to, that we can kind of learn how that paradigm changed, because that's a great thing that I love to learn is like how your thought process changed. But you mentioned the you mentioned the first book that um, I talked about in your bio, The Willed Curriculum, Unschooling and Self-Direction. Is there any more that you want to say about that book and, and maybe what you learned through that and how? your, you know, as you did the research, that paradigm on those subjects changed? Well, I mean, part of what I was trying to share in the book is that, you know, there's this myth around unschooling. And and part of what I wanted to share is that each and every one of us are unschoolers. Mm -hmm. So unschooling or, you know, this type of learning isn't some strange phenomena that's simply theoretical. But these particular approaches are actually something that people are doing. So there's, you know, Sudbury Valley schools and and Summerhill and the Albany Free School and, you know, Compass and other types of learning environments that we could point to and say that, look, people are learning in this way and they're doing so successfully. And beyond just that, each and every one of us 
learn in this way as well. So there are moments in our life where we learn things on our own. So if you need to learn something different, how do you go about doing that? So what do you do? And do you have to be tested in order to learn something? So uh, yesterday I was talking to somebody. Do you have to take a class maybe? (laughs) Yeah, that she's just come to Toronto. And when she first came, you know, she had to figure out how the subway system worked. And now it's second nature. She just goes on to the subway. And, you know, the point of the conversation ended up being that, of course, when you learned about the subway, you weren't tested, you weren't graded, you didn't have to write an essay about it or read a book about it. You just lived your life and you participated and and did what you needed to do. And then it, you know, it became something that was familiar for you. So, you know, learning happens in those types of ways. And in the book, The World Curriculum, I was also trying to share what do love, trust, respect, care, and compassion have to do with learning? And, you know, that's the gist of of that particular book. That's great. Well, and I do think it's interesting, like, you know, after the 20 something years that we have a formal education, the rest of our life is unschooled. And I think that that may be confusing for people in general is that they haven't learned to strive to find the, you know, how to learn by themselves. And so when they get out of school, I see a lot of adults struggle. You know, there's that that break of like, the, the adulting that we talk about now is like people don't know how to adult because they haven't been trusted to to do those things kind of on their own in the first place. Until that time, everything's been told to them of what they need to do. Right. Let's talk about the book that you did with Pat Ferenga. Um, he co-edited The Legacy of John Holt, The Man Who Genuinely Understood, Trusted, and Respected Children. What did you learn when you studied John Holt? Well, I mean, he's he's been a tremendous influence in my life, uh, his ideas. It's just, you know, a lot of us who think this way turn to John Holt to find somebody who echoes and feels similar ways about learning and teaching and the world in general. And so, you know, that particular book, uh, as we say in the introduction, is we wanted to sincerely thank all of the contributors to this volume for agreeing to share with us their personal experiences with John Holt. And so what I did for that book is I contacted uh, Pat Franga and I said, would you like to maybe put together a book where we get people who, you know, knew John Holt in different contexts of life, uh, not necessarily in education alone, but his friends and, and so on, and ask if they would be willing to share what their experience and memories of John were. And so thankfully the people that we connected to agreed. And so they wrote chapters in the book that just share what it was like to know John as, as a human being. And so there's some really nice stories there about uh, his life and how these people connected with his life. Before we go on, please listen to these messages. Student loan debt is in a collective $1.4 trillion, with 25% of graduates still struggling to find meaningful employment. Instead of being a statistic, live life by your own terms and join the intellectually stimulating collaborative community of Praxis. While getting a paid apprenticeship with the dynamic growing company, Praxis participants receive intensive professional development that they describe as freedom, empowerment, creativity, progress, achievement, inspiring and challenging that leads directly to a full-time job. To learn more about how you can ignite your future with this fire-starting collaborative community of Praxis, 
go to discoverpraxis.com backslash mind and view exclusive information for Luminous Mind listeners. Welcome back to The Luminous Mind with Carlo Ricci, doing the research on free-willed education. Well, and I love how you were talking about at the beginning when, you know, you always felt that that forced education, it just didn't feel right. And yeah, when you do find a man who's finally saying the things that you've always felt in your heart, I mean, it does create just this great respect for a person who, you know, finally had the courage, I guess, to speak up and question those assumptions that we talked about, you know, that why, why are we doing this and what's the thing behind right. that? Well, and let's talk about um, Turning Point, the 35 educational visionaries in education tell their own stories. What's that about that you helped do with Jerry Mintz? It was the same thing. I remember I was in a hotel room and I just thought, this idea came to me, and so I called Jerry, and I said, Jerry, I was just thinking about this, and I'm wondering what you think, and if you'd like to, to be a part of it, and he thought yes, and so that's how that book came about, and basically as a, a guideline for the people that we asked who contributed to the book, we, we asked people who were educational visionaries in education to share their story, and the questions, the guide, guiding questions we asked them were, you know, what was your schooling like? When did you realize that there is a need for an alternative approach? And what have you done since to help realize that vision? And what are you doing now? So in the book, we didn't limit ourselves to just people who are thinking about free schools or democratic schools, but we looked at people who were in mainstream schooling, Montessori, Waldorf, all kinds of different approaches and who we felt had significant impacts in their fields. And we just wanted to hear more about their story and their uh, their life. And so we compiled 35 stories. And so the book is, is really about those people's contributions to their educational journey and to the visions that they held. Well, and it is fun to hear about how people think about the pedagogies of their educational philosophies, because I think it really does show how unique our world is, you know, that, I mean, here we've created a very, I don't know, almost a cookie cutter situation of how we think every person should learn this way. But really, it, it is a very unique, like almost individual thing, correct? And so learning from those visionaries is really important to understand that. Right. What about the book that you have written, which you co-edited with Beatrice Ikoko, which is The Natural Born Learners, Unschoolers, and the Autonomy in Education? Where did you come up with that idea and how, you know, give me the background for that. Well, she actually, uh, since 2002 uh, to 2008, was running a, a program that was called Radio Free School. And it was on 93.3 FM CFMU. And basically what she did was she would interview people. She had a whole bunch of stories on there and a whole bunch of interviewees that she had. And so I contacted her and I thought maybe what we could edit a book together and take some of those stories and allow the people who shared their stories to write them up and to put them in the compilation of the book. And the way we divided the book is the first section was, you know, stories about what is unschooling, natural learning, self-determined learning. The second section of the book is what does it look like in practice? So what does, you know, unschooling and natural learning and self-determined learning look like in practice? And the third part is to look at 
stories of those who unschooled as young people and are now adults, and if they can just go back and reflect on that. So those are, you know, that's the three sections of the book in the way that we divided it. And so we just took the interviews that they had, we had them transcribed, and then we sent them back to the authors and said, you know, this is how, uh, what the story was when you did your interview for Radio Free School, and here's your manuscript, and then they massaged it in the way that they felt appropriate and sent it back to us, and then we put it together in the form of a book. So that's how that one came about. Well, and I love how, you know, you took the different ideas of talking to the educators, <laughs> the visionaries of that education, and then you did the other side of talking with learners. Because um, sometimes we're told that, you know, if we don't have school and if we don't grow up without or with school, that somehow we're going to be, you know, in the closet rocking back and forth and unable to deal with the world. But, you know, you really put a lens to that and showed us that those people that grew up making their own decisions about their education are actually, you know, great functioning people in the society. Is that correct? Yes. And then, you know, I mean, oftentimes the opposite or often the opposite happens, right? Yeah. Where you, you, but we you don't know, talk about those, those stories. From our perspective. <laughs> yeah. Well, from, from, you know, those of us who have a different worldview, we see the schools as being very, you know, poor places for learning and spaces for learning. And, you know, the world at large is the best place to learn things. And so the, the example that often comes to my mind and people ask all the time, is, you know, we talk about often or I talk about often is, you know, let's say my daughter comes up to me and says, I want to become a medical doctor. Well, what advice would you have for somebody like that? And well, the advice would be that you already know what you want to do. You want to become a medical doctor. So the first thing you should do is to get out of school because you've already decided what you want to do as an adult. And then once, you know, you're out of school, then put yourself in a position to learn absolutely everything you can about the medical profession. So hang out around pharmacies and, and hospitals and with doctors and nurses and patients and, you know, veterinary clinics and anything you could think of that'll allow you and get you in a place so that you could learn everything about that particular profession. And then once you've learned everything you need to learn about it and, you know, any way that you've decided to do it, then at that point, go off and get credentials. And I think that would give somebody a much richer starting point than how our current system works. Yeah. Sometimes we squash, I mean, over just sit hanging in there to get to the thing that the child may love to do. I mean, which is what the traditional school is, you know, let, oh, let's earn, learn all this English before we get to study medicine, even though that's your passion. Sometimes it squashes that desire out and they no longer want to because they're afraid it leads to more of that. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. Well, the next book I find really exciting. I almost feel like that this may be like the culmination of all the stuff that you learned, but it's the holistic pedagogy, the self and quality willed learning, which you co-authored with Conrad Pritcher. I'll give you my two cents of what I think it's about and then you correct me. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes when we grow up with our traditional schooling, we come to think of everything very segmented. And then all of a sudden, as we're following the strain of unschooling and natural learning, and we start to realize that it's a very holistic situation. I mean, like we talked about that 
we gain the understanding of like, you can trust what's what's going on inside of you and use that to help guide your learning. Is that what it's about? Or is it something different than that? Well, we divided the book into three parts. And the first part simply outlines what we mean by quality will learning. So Uh, And the second part outlines examples of how schools oppress and what we believe currently prevents quality will learning. And then the third part offers examples of what quality will learning looks like in practice. So that's how we divided the book. Oh, that's great. So, I mean, you've divided it up, but it is still a very holistic like approach to how that learning happens, correct? Yes, of course. And and, the, the, the interesting thing too is, that often when we use these terms like holistic and critical pedagogy and unschooling, you know, again, it's like the definition of learning that I mentioned earlier, or the word learn, that it's still contentious. So people within those particular traditions also disagree with certain things. So the deeper and the more nuances that you understand of the particular traditions, then you begin to realize that you know, even within them, there are people who think very differently about each of those things. Yeah. And the unique approach that, that I've taken is to use all of these things to come back to a place of, you know, willed learning. And often, for example, with people who are interested in critical pedagogy, I am usually 100, you know, 98% agreement with all of their criticisms and how they lay them out. And it all seems to make sense to me until many of them get to what the solution to the problem is. Mm, then it yeah. just seems to fall apart because the solution to their, you know, the problem, I mean, they, they do a wonderful job of identifying what the problem is. But when they prescribe a solution, the solution usually seems to be along the lines of, you know, more schooling. So mm. just massaging it a bit or, more you know, doing something. Yeah, and it still comes out to you know, ultimately, it still looks very much like the mainstream. So it's very frustrating when that happens. And so from my perspective, what I constantly do is to try to move beyond that, and to go to a a place in a space that looks very different than the mainstream system, but not different from what a lot of people already do in their daily life, or a lot of other, you know, pioneers have shown us that they, they currently do in their everyday schooling context. And so there are schools, of course, and there are approaches that people are currently living now that represent the type of of learning that uh, we've been talking about. I just love how you say that. I think it goes back to kind of our earlier discussions of challenging those assumptions. And when we finally come to the problem, the crux of the problem, we do need to spend some time challenging maybe what our solution would be if it would just create more of the same versus doing something entirely different. Like you said, challenging the assumptions of, you know, what, what's gone on before and, going in a different direction and and hoping. I mean, it's kind of like that statement that you hear that, you know, doing the same thing over and over again is the definition of insanity. I've totally got, I'm slaughtering that quote, but, you know, kind of that in that same vein of things. So, well, let's talk about homeschooling, a new view, a reader. Tell us about that and how that came about as well. Well, I was just at home, you know, sitting down and I got a phone call from uh, Bruce Cooper, who is, you know, the person who is leading this particular project. And he just asked if I would, uh, you know, he's 
heard about me and my work and so on and just wanted me to be a part of the editing of the book. And he just uh, said, you know, this is what we need to do. And would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. And so we set a plan together and then Francis joined us as well. And we put this book together and this book proposes to provide a multi-lensed compilation that will allow the reader to understand the major goals of homeschooling is, is what it was. And again, it's divided into three sections. And the, you know, the first part is just setting the context updates, uh, the findings and world of homeschooling from an earlier book on homeschooling that, you know, Bruce Cooper put together and it was published about a decade ago. So it's kind of an, a second edition of that particular book. And then the part two of it was understanding a range of perspectives So in the body of the book, it provides a variety of lenses into the many facets of homeschooling as both policy and practice. And then finally, the, um, you know, the third part of it is more of an international perspective, and it broadens the view of homeschooling from the United States to Europe and so on. I would think that second edition, I mean, it's kind of been an explosion in uh, a lot of people are now very interested in homeschooling where it used to be kind of a, you know, it almost used to be like an underground thing. And only we only thought the the, the very strange did it. And now it's becoming more mainstream. Are you seeing that uh, kind of with some of your work, even that maybe people are a lot more interested in reading stuff and understanding it a little bit better than they were in the past? Yeah, and I think it's becoming more naturalized. And, you know, the numbers are are pretty high. You know, there's nobody knows for sure, but there's a, a guesstimate that there are probably about two and a half million homeschoolers in the U.S. and maybe about, you know, at the high end of it, 100,000 in Canada. So that's a lot of schools worth of people. And part of what I do as a volunteer is I volunteer for the Ontario Federation of Teaching Parents, which is a, a homeschooling and organiza- organization. And what I do for, you know, part of what I do for them is that I field hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of calls a year from people who are interested in homeschooling in Ontario, but don't know where to start and don't know what the rules are, regulations are, and, you know, don't know what they need to be doing or or even what it is. And so some people come at homeschooling. I mean, people come at it from a, a whole bunch of different reasons and their motivation for homeschooling are very different But some people call me and they know, you know, right from the beginning when their child was born that they were going to homeschool and that's the decision they were going to make. And other people come to me and it's heart-wrenching because they want nothing more than their children to be successful in school and they've tried everything they could. And this is a typical narrative that I get. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they do everything the schools say and they're searching and searching and their children are are upset and anxious and miserable and so they just don't know where to turn and they're doing research and they come across something called homeschooling have no idea what it is but you know they're wondering if that might be a way of of helping and so I also founded and edit the Journal of Unschooling and Alternative Learning which is an academic peer-reviewed journal and we're going into issue 22 and uh, that's been going since 2007. So in that, the reason why I started that, the Journal of Unschooling and Alternative Learning, is because I was interested in academics. You know, academics have to jump through hoops and have to do certain things in order to get their research recognized and uh, in order to get, you know, tenure and promotion and those types of things. So I wanted to create a legitimate space, an academic journal for people who are academics to do research and then have it 
academically peer-reviewed so they would get credit for it and maybe that would uh, give them a little bit more incentive to, to do research in this area and knowing that they have a place where they could publish their research and then use that for their academic careers. And so that's why I started the journal. And in there, there is one of the pieces that, that come to mind is exactly that. And he's a, um, a psychologist from the UK and he wrote a piece in there and, and I'm probably not going to be exact about it because I haven't read it in a while, but basically the gist of it was that he was looking at school refusers. So, you know, young people who didn't want to go to school and, Really, the current treatment for that, you know, the typical treatment is drugs. Like, you know, you give them a prescription and the anxiety will go away. But he thought, well, what if we do something different? And rather than medicating people, we actually introduce homeschooling. And, and let's see if a lot of those symptoms that they were having, the you know, the anxiety and so on, while they were in school, what happens? And so when he did that, he found that, you know, the people who, instead of choosing medication, chose to homeschool who were in that position, well, they're, you know, the stress would go away. They, they would become stronger as human beings and their, you know, their well-being improved and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of, I guess, positive reasons why it's important for us to continue to, to share that there are alternative ways to learn things or, or, you know, better ways to learn things maybe rather than just saying alternative. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm going to have to connect with that, uh, find the link for that journal, because it just sounds like a lot of really interesting reading of research that's going on in this area. One of the things I really respect about you is we've been talking for almost an hour, a little over an hour, is that, you know, you it sounds like you've taken some really healthy habits of questioning and really studying this out, researching it and come to a, a different place. Do you want to maybe share with us maybe some of the habits that you've instilled in your personal life to really help you dive into the research and challenge those assumptions like we talked about earlier? Or is that well, a habit, I, I, I guess? think a lot of it <laughs> Yeah, well I think a lot of it is is to, you know, be very open to listening to different perspectives and to different approaches and to you know, I, when I do my bike riding, I really find that you know, a Japanese tradition is bathing in the woods, right? So when I go for my bike rides, I like to go in places where there are a lot of trees. And I think it really benefits my well-being to be in those particular environments and to, and to take the time to sort of contemplate and to meditate and to, and to think deeply about issues and to question, to not simply accept what has been done in the past as, you know, uh, given and, to constantly think and not be afraid to do things in very different ways, whether it's in my own teaching or in my parenting style. So, you know, force-feeding children is what I was always used to. I mean, this is what you do. This is your food. You need to eat it. And, you know, I determine what's going to go in your body and how much of it is going to go in your body. And it's not up to you to make those types of, of determinations. And so that's what was common and it just didn't sit with me and so you know you're not afraid that you know there's nothing more precious than our children uh, you know as a parent uh, that's how I feel and so to sort of throw that out and say well I'm going to do something different and let them eat candy all day if they want is a radical thing to do I think and the some results people might not think you're a great parent amazing. because of that either yeah <laughs> yeah well I mean this is the thing the thing is that you know it really makes you aware, right? Because although they have 
the option to eat candies and cookies and whatever food we consider decadent all day and not eat any, anything healthy, they, that's not what happens, right? Yeah, and yeah. So, so they can come you know, to it on their own, right? Leap, yeah, and taking that huge leap is amazing because all of a sudden you get to see how they develop their eating habits. And I think I have a pretty good diet, but they have probably even a better diet than I do. And they're, they've come to it on their own largely, right? Yeah. So it's amazing to sort of challenge these types of assumptions and to think that, you know, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And to take the leap and say, well, I'm going to try and see if that's the result. And I learned so much by just watching and, and observing and seeing, well, you know, that's actually not what happened. You know, what happened is that they, they've decided to become responsible for their own eating habits. And of course they have, you know, candy and chips and cookies and, but in very moderate levels and they ask for, you know, I have a shopping list and anybody could put whatever they want on there and they put healthy foods on there. And, you know, the, the types of foods that they choose to eat on a daily basis are very um, nutritious. And so, you know, you just, you learn from these types of situations. And, and like I said, I am very thankful for having and to be in a place and a space where I get to connect with people like that and talk to, you know, my children and other people that have had this type of freedom and just to see how, you know, they embrace it. And, you know, the other, what I notice is that if I had imposed food on them, the way I see it, it's so much worse. Like we've gone to places before and our children, uh, when they were, you know, all they had was dessert, you know, so I'm sure people looking at us from afar would think, wow, those parents are, you know, look, they just let their children go right into dessert. They didn't have anything else. And, but when I thought about how that played itself out, I mean, it, it was rare that a situation like that would happen. But if I had imposed food on them, what would happen? Well, first of all, you know, there'd be this power struggle. So as parents were already starting off on a negative plane, then they would overeat, you know, enormous amounts because first, they would eat everything that I would force them to. And then they eat what they really wanted, which was the dessert. And they would be so full, but they would have it anyway, because that's what they wanted in the first place. To me, it seems a lot worse. Whereas in this situation, they thought, well, you know, I just want to have some ice cream at this point. So they just have the ice cream and they have it in moderation and they don't overeat. And then they make up for it nutritionally in, in other ways and other times in a very organic way and they're responsible for their bodies and you know they know when they're full because they are used to gauging for themselves when it's time for them to stop eating and when they were younger i remember going into stores and so on and i would i would get a chocolate bar and i would say you know would you girls like to have something and they would say no thank you and i shake my head and say well you know this is so different than what I, you know, yeah. my image of what children are like. When you offer chocolate bars, they go for it and no questions asked. But because they know they can have it whenever they want, if they don't feel like it, they just won't have it. Whereas if it was a treat and they mostly can never have it, and then when you go, of course, you know, you say, well, I'm giving you the opportunity to have it. Even if they're full and whatever it is, they'll jump at it because yeah. most of the time they can't. And so I think it, you know, challenging what the status quo of parenting is and, you know, taking risks and monitoring what the actual evidence is after that happens is just, I think, extremely 
enlightening, at least it has been for me. Yeah. And sometimes our compulsion can backfire on us an awful lot. And I think we're seeing that in our society, you know, of how we forced people to do certain things and then actually created the opposite result of what we intended. Let's kind of talk mm-hmm. about, I mean, I'm just uh, really impressed with the stuff that you've done so far. But tell us, you know, do you have any long term goals and how that works into your legacy? I mean, tell us what we can expect to see from you in the future. Well, I think that a lot of it is to to continue doing the type of work that I'm doing, you know, to continue with the uh, Journal of Unschooling and Alternative Learning and to continue to advocate for young people and all people and all learners and to continue to impress on people that there are other ways, there are gentler ways, there are more loving ways. You know, there it doesn't have to be the way it is. And, you know, one of the frustrating things for me is that a lot of people have these, you know, within the, the community that I connect with as academics, that they have this this perception of the type of work that I do. And so I've had students who've come into my classes and said, well, you know, we've actually heard quite a bit about you. And um, how wrong everything you're sharing with us, how wrong all of your you know, way of thinking is and, and so on and so forth. And then after they hear the story from me, they say, you know, that they're so shocked at how much now they are in agreement with the types of things that I was saying and that, that people who shared with them what my position was really didn't do it justice. And so it's very frustrating that people who, even academics who aren't exposed to and have never been exposed to, you know, let's say a Sudbury Valley school or an unschooler or a homeschooling community, they all have, you know, they have their misperceptions of what that community is like. And trying to continue to, to break down those barriers and to and to get people to recognize and understand that people are becoming literate and numerate and they're participating in our world and are doing it in much gentler, loving ways. And so we don't have to uh, continue to do this whole notion of coercion, right? But yeah. as John Taylor Gatto tells us in, you know, in his book, The Underground History of American Education, and I love the subtitle, which is An Intimate Investigation into Modern Schooling, An Intimate Investigation into the Prison of Modern Schooling, so schools are prison-like, it all comes down to thinking about this whole notion of what were schools designed to do when they were designed, right? I mean, schooling is a fairly recent uh, experiment. I mean, they've only been around for 150, 200 years. And John Taylor Gatto tells us, you know, they started in Prussia and it was never about freedom and liberation. And other, uh, you know, places uh, looked to it and said, look, this is brilliant. They created an architecture or a, you know, a system where we can control people's minds, bodies, spirits, and emotions. So, you know, why don't we as leaders take that model and introduce it into our world so that we could control the population that we live in and get people to do what we want, when we want, how, you know, we want, and so on. And so, you know, I mean, the danger is that it's not that schools are not doing what they were designed to do, but the scary thing is that they're doing exactly what they were designed to do, which is yeah. control people's minds, bodies, spirits, and emotions. And so how do you continue to get that message across that, you know, that's not a good thing? And, you know, beyond that, do those who are in positions of power, are they comfortable with it doing exactly that? And they want it to continue to do exactly that. So then it comes down to, well, what are the options? And I like what John Holt says, and he says, 
Well, you know, the best we can do is not change the mainstream system, but to work in areas where we could create a hole in the fence and allow people who want to escape to escape. And so that's why, you know, I spent so much time around homeschooling and unschooling and helping people and doing work in that area as a volunteer and an advocate and so on, because at least it'll give the people a real option. So those, you know, we're lucky in Ontario that there's fairly low level regulation when it comes to homeschooling. And so uh, people do have a lot of freedom to learn in ways that are gentler and more loving for themselves. And so the type of work that I do and, and hopefully will continue to do is to help people escape who choose to do so. And hopefully, if enough people do, eventually, you know, the system will recognize that there are, you know, alternative ways and people are voting with their feet and this is what will happen. But you know, is there going to be a mass exodus from the mainstream schooling system? Again, we live in a neoliberal, neoconservative, capitalistic world. And so that's the philosophy and worldview that permeates and people are mostly comfortable with that. Yeah. And so if we don't think in that way, you know, then we have to sort of make sure that we can create spaces and places where people can escape. And, and those are the areas that I think make the most difference in, in terms of allowing people to to do things in gentler ways. Yeah, sadly, it will repeat itself in the fact that the people being educated in those systems are not always told the truth of what that system's designed to do and whatever, and then it just perpetuates itself. But luckily, we have people like you and Pat Ferenga and the other thought leaders on unschooling and homeschooling and stuff that are helping us see a different way. And that's what we've got to do is just continue to preach that message that it can be different and that we ask them to challenge their assumptions of, you know, what they think things are. And I think it's important to be provocative and so on, but it's also more important to just live your life in the way, you know, as Gandhi says, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. So by simply doing that, people will notice and will come on board. So for my own students, um, a lot of them are teachers either in you know universities or, or colleges or high schools or elementary schools. I teach in a graduate studies program, so people who are doing either a, a master's or a PhD in education. And so in my own teaching to make sure that I model the you know the approach of of unschooling and and in my own life to live in ways that I believe are are friendlier to the world and to the planet. And, you know, and and again, I don't impose it on anybody. I don't force others to think the way I think. I just tell them that the best I can do is to share with you how I see the world. And if you're in agreement or if, if something resonates with you, then I'm happy that that's the situation. But if it doesn't, then we can continue the conversation and we can continue to provoke each other. And mm-hmm. hopefully by doing that, we'll both continue to grow and, uh, and go from there. Yeah. Well, and I love like the subtitle of the book, The Willed Curriculum, Unschooling and Self-Direction. The question is, what do love, trust, respect, care, and compassion have to do with learning? And those are words that you have to use and live on a daily basis with all your interactions with everyone to really move the needle, in my opinion. <laughs> right. No, I agree. And this is what I tell my students all the time, that if you think that what we're doing here is only about, you know, schools and learning and that kind of thing, then you've really missed, missed the whole the point. point because yeah. what we're talking about here is is more holistic and more interconnected. And it's about how 
we interact with everybody and everything that we come into contact with. And so the underlying philosophy is the same, but the application happens in all contexts, not just in... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. We've talked for quite a while. I could, I'd love listening to you. But before we say goodbye, do you have any maybe parting words for our listeners? And then give us your contact information, how they can you know, find more of your writing and really be able to follow you. Well, I guess in terms of parting words, it's uh, you know always keep a hopeful attitude and to recognize that they're... The situation is extremely hopeful and that we are, each and every one of us, are empowered and we do have a voice and we do have a say and that, you know, we can, each and every one of us, make a difference in the world that we live in and that if we choose to, we could sort of find places and spaces that, you know, where we can act in ways that will make huge differences Uh, and even little differences to people would be, uh, in a lot of cases, would be huge and so... It doesn't have to be earth shattering, but we can all change and be the change that we want to see in the world. Then, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if we change, then the world we live in changes because we're a part of it. And in terms of contact information, probably the best address to reach me at is my Nipissing address, which is Carlo R C A R L O R at Nipissing N I P I S S I N G U dot C A. So that's Carlo R at nipissingu.ca. What a great way to end it. You know, what a hopeful message from you. And I really appreciate you. I'm so thankful to a listener, uh, Lori Muse, for connecting me with you and, and some of your work. Again, his contact information is Carlo R at nipissingu.ca. However, we're going to be sure to link all that information that we've discussed today on our website. I'm hopefully going to get the link also to the journal that you were talking about of unschooling, because I'd love our listeners to see that. But thank you so much, Carlo, for coming on and joining us and really helping to light our minds on fire on this important topic of unschooling and holistic pedagogy, as well as critical pedagogy. I mean, what great topics. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. And uh, I'm really happy to have... uh been invited. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. To learn more about Carlo Ricci, go to our show notes at theluminousmind.net. Be sure to become a subscriber to our free email list. Then check out the services tab to see how we can continue to assist you, our fire starters. Also, to help us continue production of illuminating content, go to the sponsor tab at theluminousmind.net for more information on sponsorship and affiliate programs. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Google+, Pinterest, and now Instagram. Get our free audio content by subscribing on YouTube, iTunes, and Stitcher. To help us grow, consider these easy ways. Tell your friends about us, leave us a review, share our content. Tell us how we can help you so together we can continue to light minds on fire and change the paradigm of education.